Hi guys, and welcome or welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Indira, and today I'm joined by Rich Blagrove. He's a senior physiology lecturer at Loughborough University and has a wealth of experience across all things strength and conditioning coaching, physiology, and he's recently moved more towards studying endurance athletes, bone health and injuries. So in this very insightful episode, we'll be going through a range of physiological, strength and conditioning and bone health related facts and knowledge around all things specific to female endurance runners. Hope you guys enjoy And before we get into it, as always, if you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to give it a rating and a follow, as this really helps to give credibility to the podcast so I can keep bringing you guys the high quality guests you want to hear from. Okay, let's get into it. Rich, hi, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Thanks for the invitation to come on. No, absolutely no. Great to have you on. Have you had a busy morning so far? Uh, just emails generally, um, all the boring stuff that comes with being an academic. (laughs) Sounds, sounds very exciting. Um, (laughs) okay. And so can you briefly introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, sure. So my name is Rich Blaygrove. Um, as we were saying before we, uh, we came on air, I used to be a competitive runner a long time ago. (laughs) I actually did my undergraduate and my master's at Loughborough University, so not too dissimilar to you. Um, and I was mostly an 800 meter runner while I was uh, while I was a student. So um, yeah, I was coached by George Gandhi, um, and who's yeah sadly passed away a couple of years ago. And I certainly wasn't as high standard as most of the guests that you've had, <laughs> but I, I was okay. I, like I was, I was yeah. I used to win medals at sort of Northern Championships and regional, but uh, certainly wasn't a Great Britain international. Um, and then, yeah, mostly because of injuries, I decided to switch sports after I left uni. So I was I was rowing for four years, um, which was a really good experience because obviously rowing is an incredibly successful sport in this country. So I learned quite a lot uh, while I was doing that. Um, and then I started to get into a bit of strength and conditioning coaching. Um, so I started off working with footballers and basketball players, actually. Um, and then I, I managed to get a job back at Loughborough University. So yeah, I've kind of yo-yoed to and from the university over the years. And I was working there as a strength and conditioning coach for a couple of years um, with the runners, actually, and some of the triathletes. So, uh, yeah, built up a bit of a relationship with uh, with Bill Foster, as we were talking about before. Um, and then I moved down to St. Mary's University and I was a lecturer in strength and conditioning and programme director for the undergraduate course they had there in strength and conditioning. And I guess because of my, my sort of passion for running and athletics, I kind of I naturally started to coach S and C to um, to a lot of the runners down there. I think most of your, list, your listeners will know what the kind of environment and traditions like down at St Mary's. Um, and so yeah, I was really lucky to work alongside like Mick Woods and Nick. I worked with some of Nick Bidow's athletes for a few years and John Big. Um, and several of them made Olympic finals during the period that I was working with them. So that was that was fantastic. Um, and I was kind of getting so many in- inquiries from coaches and runners during that period that I decided to write a book. <laughs> so I wrote a book called Strength and Conditioning for Endurance Running, which um, was just kind of a resource that I could give to any runners and coaches that were interested in what I was doing with my runners. And I guess it's kind of served its purpose in that sense over the last uh, sort of eight years or so. Um and then, yeah, around the time that I left St. Mary's, I started getting involved with more academic research. And so naturally, I wanted to investigate the use of strength training with runners. Um, 
And yeah, I mostly use post-pubertal adolescent distance runners as my kind of target population that I was interested in. Um, I had a short period of time working in Birmingham and then in 2019, I moved to Loughborough and I'm now a senior lecturer in physiology and also lead the masters that we've got in strength and conditioning at the university. Um, and yeah, my current research is really, I guess it's stem, it goes from kind of pure performance research. So looking at the physiology of, of middle and long distance running performance to how we can use strength training to improve performance and reduce injury risk. And then more recently, I've started investigating health issues. So specifically the relative energy deficiency in sports syndrome that uh, unfortunately a lot of um, high performing runners seem to get, um, or at least got some mild symptoms associated with that syndrome and how strength training can be used to either reduce the risk of them getting negative health consequences or equally like how we can help rehabilitate and recover those that, that, uh, that, that have had reds. Yeah. Sorry, that was all a bit long-winded. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's a, it's a wealth of experience and knowledge there, which is really exciting. And I'll be sure to link that book down below as well, actually, for anyone oh, who's thank you. interested in, in following it up, because, yeah, clearly a, a lot of knowledge that, that you've got. And are there some things at the moment, I mean, I suppose you've kind of covered your areas of research, but aside from that, anything that you feel particularly strongly about within the sport of running in general? Yeah, things I feel strongly about. So I've obviously got a, a real passion for like anything associated with performance and health in runners. And I just mentioned that. Um, like, yeah, I think one of the areas I feel quite strongly about, and I know there's a lot of disagreement on this, is um, is like the new technology in shoes, which sort of came out kind of 2017, 2018. And I know it went through a bit of a period of being controversial and so on, but I just like you and all of your listeners will be aware of like the number of world records that we've seen both on the track and the road over sort of 5k 10k half marathon a marathon like over the last four or five years and you I just kind of like compared to 10 years ago you kind of watch those performances now and you don't really know whether the person that's breaking the world record or winning the race has got the best physiology or the best kind of tactics and like yeah maybe mental preparation or whether they're just like really really positive responders to the shoes um because we know it makes a huge difference and we know that there's there's quite a big individual response to different types of shoes and so if you happen to be sponsored by a shoe company that um that has got a, a really big benefit and then you respond to that benefit as well like that probably outweighs the differences that we see in physiology like on the start line of a race so i know a lot of people would disagree with that and they kind of would just be like just get with the times like it's just <laughs> evolution of the sport sort of thing but like I kind of find it hard to watch all these world records being broken and it's like it's probably the shoes rather than the runners <laughs> yeah no it's it is such an interesting topic and you know that balance between physiology versus shoes I mean there's so much modern science available now it's like I suppose you need x amount of talent but then especially with the individual responses how how do you sort of determine what shoe might suit someone best and how exactly. much can that compensate yeah, no, I was just going to say, and for runners that, are, that don't have a sponsor, so the kind of sub-elites and those that are trying to break through into elite ranks, like it's really difficult because you've potentially got to like try out lots of different types of shoes and see which one you respond to best, can, like uh, based on your biomechanics, um, which makes it time consuming and expensive. So, yeah, it's really difficult. Yeah, definitely some increasing accessibility barriers, to be honest, you can't 
really compete without carbon shoes at this point on the road certainly in my opinion Absolutely. anyway yeah yeah um, in terms of the kind of the physiology surrounding it do you have much sort of knowledge of how that and biomechanics interact and impact with the different sort of carbon plates um a little bit so yeah we, we know the shoes mainly benefit running economy and so running economy is like the amount of energy that we're using to perform a sub-maximal intensity of exercise and so we know that the interaction between the carbon plate and the foam like reduces the amount of energy that's needed to to run at a given speed um the biomechanics it would yeah secondly we, we know that there's quite a, a large in individual response um and so some people don't seem to get any benefit from it, whereas some people seem to improve their economy by like seven, eight percent, which is which is huge, particularly at an elite level. Um, in terms of the variables and the sort of characteristics that underpin that individual response, there's not there's not been a ton of research on it. Like there's some showing that people that have got quite an aggressive heel strike seem to benefit a little bit more because their foot's in contact with the ground for a little bit longer and the foam seems to compress a little bit more compared to those that are forefoot strikers and the kind of on and off the ground quite quickly. But again, I imagine that's different between different makes and models of the shoes. Um, like there might be something around kind of anthropometrics, so how long your legs are relative to your torso. Um, but again, I don't think there's a, a ton of research on that. Um, and maybe something just around familiarity. So if you've trained regularly in a certain pair, like you might get a slightly bigger response compared to if it's the first time you've worn them you might get a smaller response. Um, so when you sort of build in all of those things, yeah, you can kind of see that on a start line, it's not necessarily going to be the person that's trained the hardest and has got the best physiology. Yeah, no, definitely. It is so interesting, especially with, you know, sponsorship. If a certain athlete's sponsored by someone, they've got to wear their products. And <laughs> overall, do you think then that someone would be able to run a time that they're not capable of running without the shoes or do you think that the shoes just allow people to, I guess, reach their full potential at an accelerated rate and with it feeling slightly easier? Yeah, so we we know, I mean, I'm talking about kind of the, the original research in the night vapor flies, that the average response to, to running economy was about 4%, um, which translates to about an improvement of between 1% and 2% in performance, which, as I say, for a recreational runner, that's that's probably it's like negligible it's neither here nor there so it probably doesn't make a huge difference for them whereas for an elite runner that's it's, it's quite a big difference particularly over like a marathon for example um and so undoubtedly like it does give them the edge and that's that's probably the reason why we've seen so many world records over the last five years or so um and, and also kind of runners that i mean and obviously no disrespect to them at all but runners that you've not really heard of that much that um, maybe 10 years ago, for someone to break a world record, um, they'd be kind of well-established and very successful at major championships. And you'd kind of know that they had a chance of breaking it. Whereas now you sort of get East Africans and other runners coming on the scene that aren't really that well-established. You're not really heard of them that much. And yeah, they'll, they'll smash a world record by quite a long way. And I would, yeah, I would suggest that a big part of that is the shoe technology. Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely does. I mean, from my own experience, I know that you sort of, I feel like it's easier when I'm running with the shoes, actually. Um, even though the times are quicker, it just, it does feel easier. It does, you can feel that it takes less energy. Uh, yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. So, Sorry, all this, all this has been very, <laughs> it sounds like very negative to start off with. But, uh... 
you did I mean, ask <laughs> <laughs> yeah whoops my bad um so if we now move on to sort of physiology and strength training firstly can you give a brief overview of kind of what physiology is for anyone who's you know not familiar with with the term yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, I guess physiology is just the study of sort of biological systems within the body. So like our cardiovascular system, our respiratory system, um, how we use energy at a muscle level would kind of be our metabolic system. And we know that running is mostly limited by those things compared to other sports where it's it's probably like biomechanics or skill. Um, and we, we know quite well that there's three main factors in physiology that limit running performance. So we've got our VO2 max, so our maximal oxygen uptakes, that's the highest amount of oxygen that we can get into our body, uh, transport to the working muscles, and then the, the working muscles use that oxygen in order to sort of recreate energy at a muscle level. Um, there's something called our fractional utilisation, and most runners will know this as like the speed at different metabolic thresholds. And so people will know the term lactic threshold or kind of anaerobic threshold, and so the faster that speed for the, the threshold that it equates to, essentially the faster you're going to run. Um, and then the third factor, which I've already mentioned, is, is economy. And so economy is the amount of energy that you're using for a submaximal intensity. Um, I guess what's interesting for me as a physiologist is we know that the VO2 max and speed at different metabolic thresholds and running economy, like you can get an improvement in one of those, but not the other two, or equally you can get an improvement in a different one and not the other two. And so it probably takes different types of training in order to nudge each of those three different factors forward. Um, I guess for, for middle distance runners, um, we also need to mention like more anaerobic factors. So like we know that maximal sprint speed is absolutely key. Um, and we know that, what we term like anaerobic capacity, which I guess would best be represented by like somebody's 400 meter time, for example, is, is also really important. So yeah, having good anaerobic characteristics for particularly for middle distance runners is, is important as well. Oh, wow. No, that's a, it's a lot of factors going on there. And in terms of, I guess, the, the different ones that you mentioned, how much can someone improve those or how much of a limiting factor can, can they kind of be? Yeah, that is a really good question, actually. And we, we know that, so runners that are operating at your sort of level, so fourth in the short course at Berg, so <laughs> <laughs> had, to, had to drop that in. Um, and well done, well done again. Thank you. Um, so yeah, runners like yourself that are operating at like a, a decent level, like you've probably, you're probably close to maximising your VO2 max, or your maximal oxygen uptake because we know that there's a genetic ceiling and it doesn't take too many years of training to get to that genetic ceiling. And then it doesn't really change very much. And so for, for well-trained and elite runners, the two main areas that we can get improvements are our speed at different thresholds. So the speed that lactic threshold, for example, and then particularly our running economy. Um, and so we know that even in elite runners that have got really, really high VO2 maxes and their speed at their lactic threshold is really high, that some have got quite poor running economy and some have got exceptional running economy. And so it seems to be that that's differentiating performance just in terms of their physiology um, compared to particularly VO2 max. Okay, interesting. And so I guess in VO2 max is the, the most limiting factor in terms of, you know, once you hit that, there's not so much more that can be done. Is there, yeah. what's the sort of range that can still be seen in terms of VO2 max for kind of higher level um distance and middle distance runners 
Yeah, so you're exactly right. The VO2 max is still a kind of gold standard in a really, really big population. So if you were to take, I don't know, all of the finishers in your race at Bucks, like the first 10 that would have crossed the line would have had the highest VO2 max. The last 10 or 20 that crossed the line would have had the lowest VO2 max. So there is a really tight correlation. But the first 10 that would have crossed the line, like probably would have had a really, really similar VO2 max. So for so for female athletes, that's going to be in the region of around about 70 for somebody that's well trained, sometimes um, sometimes pushing into the mid to low 70s. So as, as part of my PhD, I tested English schools, junior champions and national cross country junior champions. And I measured a couple at 72, 73, which for a, a 17 year old female runner is is exceptional. And then for males, we're looking more like kind of high 70s and, and low 80s usually. But as I say, quite early in your career, and using my example of my the junior runners that I tested, like they've probably already topped out what their VO2 max is. So even kind of five years later, with an, another five years of training behind them, they probably haven't really changed their VO2 max very much. But what has changed is the speed that they can operate at, their lactic threshold, and they've probably improved their running economy. And then that results in the improvement that we see in their performance over 5k 10k half marathon and so on oh wow no that that's really interesting so I guess training attention should be focused more in the direction of that um you know the thresholds and economy as opposed to I guess vo2 sort of training perhaps yeah absolutely that's certainly what a physiologist would argue I think and um yeah and we, we can get into the types of training that potentially might improve those things but um it's they seem to be developed with more mileage for sure and i think naturally runners from junior to under 23 up to senior will naturally be trying to increase the mileage that they're running year on year particularly during the winter months and um that's will certainly drive up changes in lactic threshold and running economy and will obviously get you improvements in performance but alongside that you obviously need to be doing the more intense stuff so the interval sessions and the tempo runs and so on yeah, no, that's that's really interesting to hear. And so, if we sort of turn our attention more to drill down a bit, a bit deeper in terms of metabolic cost, what exactly is this, and how much or can it then impact on on someone's performance? Yeah, so the metabolic cost is just basically another way of saying running economy. Like it's it's essentially the same thing. So, I guess if we're saying metabolic cost, we could break that down into how much carbohydrates and fats that you're using as well, but. I guess for just the purposes of running performance, what we're really talking about when we say the cost of running is somebody's like how economical they are with the amount of oxygen that they've got. And those that can use less oxygen for the same running speed are generally going to be better performers than those that have to use a little bit more. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to hear. And in what ways can strength training then positively impact this? Um, and are there any other benefits on running performance? Yeah, so uh, I, I guess this is where my kind of bias lies. This is what I've been doing for the last 15 years, <clears throat> helping runners with their S&C. So what's um, super interesting, I'll say that in inverted commas because it's interesting for me, yeah. is that um, so VO2 max and lactic threshold, like they're, they're mainly limited by our like cardiorespiratory and metabolic factors. And so strength training doesn't do very much for, for those variables. Whereas running economy, like we've already touched upon it with the shoes, it's influenced by your running style or your biomechanics. It's influenced by um, 
your anthropometrics, like your height and your leg lengths and so on. It's influenced by what shoes you've got on your feet. And it's also influenced by your neuromuscular system. So that's kind of how strong your muscles are and how good they are at developing force. Um, and also how effective you how effectively you can use your tendons to store and return elastic energy. And so because we know that those neuromuscular factors are important for running economy, like we've got quite good evidence to show that if you do a period of strength training, um, so I'm talking sort of two, three, four months, we get a boost in running economy of around about 4%. And so if you get a boost in running economy of 4%, that improves like your time trial or your time to exhaustion time. There's also good evidence it improves your maximal sprint speed. So obviously that's really, really positive for distance runners that they're spending time in the gym, but actually their, their running performance is getting better. Oh, okay. Wow, gosh, yeah. So, so many things. I can't imagine um, improving tendon energy retention is particularly easy. Um, but Yeah, it's, I mean, with the research that I've done, you can probably break strength training down into three main areas. So you've got, heavy resistance training which is which is like your traditional lifting weights um you've got explosive strength training which is trying to it's trying to move light objects really 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 fast so like throwing a medicine ball or jumping onto a box like doing a box jump um and then there's plyometric training which is basically jumping hopping bounding skipping type exercises and it's those exercises that improve your ability of particularly your achilles tendon to store energy and then release it again um, and if you improve that, you essentially save your muscles from doing more work. And so it reduces your cost of running. So your running economy. Interesting. So I suppose in that respect, it's kind of similar to what carbon plated shoes can do in the sense it, that it's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, I guess a lot of people don't really draw those parallels, but it's not too dissimilar. Mm. And so arguably, if you do <laughs> if you do strength training and you've got a really, really good pair of carbon plated shoes on your feet, you've got a double a double whammy. <laughs> Take the eight <laughs> percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for someone who's maybe um, not doing a lot of strength training or kind of wondering where they should focus their attention, if you had to pick one type, what type is best to focus on or what kind of different benefits on performance can people see? based on different types of strength training? Yeah, that is a really good question. And from, from the research that I've done personally, we don't, we don't tend to see that one of them is better than the other. And so the, the way that I tend to organise my s and with, with the runners that I work with is that they, they incorporate like a little bit of heavyweight training, some plyometric training and some explosive work, like actually in most sessions, particularly if you're quite new to it because you don't need to do very much of each of those to get a benefit. Um, and then with runners that have been doing it for a few years, like I tried to kind of periodize, as we call it, those types of training through the year. So they'll start the year with a bit more weight training, they'll move on to explosive training, and they'll focus a bit more on plyometric training. Um, well, usually about this time of year, so before the, um, before they get into sort of pre-season track type work. Um, and that way they get the benefit of doing each type as they move through the winter or, or the training year. Um, but yeah, as I say, for, for people that are just starting out, you don't need to do like really high volumes of any of those types of training to get a benefit. And so what I tend to prescribe is just as few as kind of like six to eight sets of lower body weight training with a fairly light weight to start off with for, for runners that are novice to this. And so that could be like a simple body weight squat. It could be like a glute bridge on the ground. 
um, like a dead leg step up or some sort of lunging pattern. And then if you do those across two sessions um, within a week, that's kind of six to eight sets per session. And that's like a reasonable dosage of, of basic strength work. Um, and so you don't need to be kind of training like a bodybuilder in order to get the benefits of, of doing resistance training. Like it's quite small amounts to get benefits. Okay, that that's really good to hear. And for people who are maybe more seasoned in the gym, should they be looking to constantly increase the amount they're doing? Or is there sort of a point where it's like, okay, two sessions a week with me- medium amount of weights is is sufficient for people who run? Yeah, I don't think you need to be doing huge volumes. So I'd, I'd certainly increase like probably the number of sets slowly over the course of a few years, but probably no more than about 12 sets within a session for like lower body, lower body muscles. I guess you'd get the progressive overload mostly from the intensity of the exercise. And so if if a novice is just starting out, they might not lift more than 20, 30 kilograms on a squat to start off with. But with some of the like Olympic finalists that I've worked with and some of the senior elite runners that um, have made major championships, like to give you a bit of an idea. Um, so some of the middle distance runners will be back squatting 120 kilograms. This is, sorry, male athletes. And the female athletes will be kind of like 60, 70 kilograms, but they're doing the same sorts. They're doing the same number of sets and repetitions as a novice athlete would be, but just at a much, much higher loads. Um, so it gives you a bit of an, an idea of, and that's maybe after five, six years of engaging with sort of structured strength and conditioning. So it takes time to build up to that sort of load, but they're getting sufficient overload on the neuromuscular system because of the intensity of the exercise. Okay. No, that's really interesting to hear. And in terms of, I guess, strength training and its impact on physiology, what for you is the most important factor or what do you think's the thing that can make the biggest difference? I think probably just the basic resistance training is is still probably the most important. Um, So getting in the routine of a couple of sessions a week through the winter, doing like a, a resistance training session, which is ideally it's with a coach but something where the technique's quite good um, and you're just putting a little bit of load through your skeleton and your neuromuscular system to drive those those adaptations. Um, I always do a small amount of plyometrics all year round and that would, I tend to give that a bigger emphasis as athletes become more experienced. Um, and I mean, I guess the other area that we haven't spoken about at all, which is I also see as really important, is kind of specific conditioning for tissues that are vulnerable to injury. And so particularly if you've had a succession of injuries around a certain part of your body, so for female runners, that might often be the knee, so sort of patellofemoral pain, it might be the Achilles tendon like I had, like you need quite a big bias in your strength and conditioning around the areas that have been injured in the past to make sure those in make sure those injuries don't uh, don't come back again. Um, I've had quite a few runners over the years and there's not a great amount of evidence for this, but, um, a lot of runners that have been big advocates of doing barefoot conditioning. And so I'll, I'll tend, not for all runners, but I'll tend to put like a little barefoot conditioning routine in for, for a lot of runners. And, and some runners will do that like two or three times a week and it only needs to take 10 or 15 minutes and it can be done like after an easy run in the comfort of your own home. But, um, I've had a lot of really good runners that have sworn by that routine and said it, it makes a huge difference. And I've not had any injury since that. But uh, yeah, there's there's a little bit of evidence for it, but probably 10 exercises of barefoot conditioning. Um, I would also see as being quite important for runners. 
Okay, well, time to get your toes out, people, clearly. Yeah, exactly. And get your socks <laughs> off. yeah, definitely. And no, that is interesting because people often do, you know, tend to have reoccurring injuries around a similar place. And kind of on that note of injury and moving towards sort of bone health and the work you've done there with endurance athletes, what is an overuse injury and typically why do these occur? Yeah, so the ovary injuries are the most common type of injuries in runners. I think they account for like 90-95% of injuries that runners get. Um, and so obviously every kind of tissue that you've got in your lower limb, whether it's bone or tendon, muscle or ligament, it's got some kind of certain tolerance to repeated stress. Um, and obviously, obviously after each run that you do, you, you those tissues have to go through a repair process. And if those repair processes can't keep up with the repeated damage and stress that you're giving them, that at some point that tissue is going to break down and kind of signal a pain response to protect, well, both that tissue and, and your whole body from excessive damage. And so it'll be at that point that you kind of, yeah, you start limping a little bit when you go to the shops and you're like, oh, my knee's hurting. And then you try to go for a run later and, and yeah, you, you maybe can't do it. And so therefore you have to start missing training sessions. So that would be what we consider an overuse injury that it's brought about through repeated stresses. So run after run, foot strike after foot strike, um, week in, week out for long periods of time. Yeah. Yeah. Every, every runner's nightmare really. And I know I've experienced <laughs> enough of them myself. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. Completely, completely done with them. Who needs tendons, honestly. <laughs> and in terms of kind of the gender difference then, do females present differently or more frequently with overuse injuries? And are there certain injuries that you see more commonly in females than males? Yeah, it's a really interesting question that, and it's um, it's certainly topical in sort of sports science and medicine. I think for I think for runners, injury rates between men and women there's not a, there's not a huge difference, but what is different is the location of those injuries, and and so we know with female runners that they seem to have more injuries around the knee, whereas male runners tend to have more around kind of foot and, and ankle. Um, like the reason for that is, and this is mostly research from other sports, it's probably due to kind of neuromuscular control in females that comes about through having a, what we call like a greater Q angle, which is essentially means that females have got wider hips than, than males. And so essentially that means the knee tends to sort of point inwards with every foot strike and it probably causes more stress to structures around the knee, which um, which might cause pain in some female runners. And they, they also seem to have a, this is female runners, seem to have a slightly higher reliance on quadriceps. So the muscles at the front of your thigh compared to the hamstrings, which are at the back of your thigh and, and the gluteal muscles. And it's it's maybe that that's also contributing towards like more stress being put through the knee than in uh, than in male runners. Oh, no, that's really interesting, actually, because I personally do have really narrow hips and I haven't really had knee issues, but I've had loads of foot and ankle issues over the years. So, Okay. I, yeah, I suppose that could could add up. And in terms of the kind of the front of the leg, back of the leg, um, quads, hamstring situation, do you think there's any physiological reasons behind that or uh, do you, yeah, what are your thoughts on, on why that might be the case? Yeah, so if you think about every time that your foot strikes the ground, like it sort of goes into, your knee goes into flexion, so it starts to bend a little bit more. And so essentially what your body's trying to do to get the foot back off the ground is control control the extent of that flexion. And so what your, quadrice what your quadriceps and hamstrings both do at the same time is kind of contract in order to control that knee position upon landing. And if the quads 
much, much stronger than the hamstrings. It tends to be a little bit less effective. And then the other factor, as I was kind of alluding to before a little bit, is there tends to be more of a sort of rotational movement and an inward collapse of the knee if you've got if if the femur so the bone in your your thigh is coming in from a steeper angle and so again like having adequate can had adequate strength in gluteals and hamstrings will control that position a little bit better um so it's probably those things that are contributing um i mean in terms of s and c what what i tend to do and this isn't just for runners but any female athletes is the resistance training aspect of the program will have more of a bias towards hip and hamstring strengthening than, than male programs. Um, like it's probably, and this isn't my area of expertise, but it's probably worth looking at biomechanics a little bit. And so if there's, if we've got a female runner that's had a lot of knee problems, it's worth looking at kind of risky and faulty biomechanics as part of their running technique and see if we can implement some kind of gait retraining approaches in order to offset like the amount of stress that's going through the knee. Um, and I guess the other big area, which I know we're probably going to come on to in a, a second, is just, is just making sure that energy intake is adequate for females Um because we know that that's probably a risk factor for just injury generally, but specifically bone-related injury. Yeah, definitely. And in terms of, I guess, before we move on to more specifically bone-related stuff, in terms of pre preventing injuries, specifically for women, are there any things in particular that can be an area of focus? Yeah, so, I, I mean, injury, injuries generally are pretty complex and multifactorial. Like the, the way that research tends to go is it likes to kind of look at one thing at a time. And some, sometimes it will show that um, like characteristics or factors play a part in injury. But most of the time, it's like a combination of different things. And so I've already spoken about it, but the, the main risk factor for any type of overuse injury in female runners is previous injury. And so the first thing that I would ask as a strength and condition coach, whenever I meet a runner for the first time, is tell me about the injuries you've had in like the last three years. You, you don't need like really specific detail, but if they're like, oh yeah, I've had three or four Achilles issues or these knee issues or IT band problems, like the likelihood they're gonna get that problem again is really, really high. And so there's gotta be some sort of bias in the SNC programming to trying to rectify the issue with that area of the body or just trying to strengthen the tissues around that area to try to reduce the risk of it coming back. Um, the, the second big factor, which has been shown pretty consistently in the literature is just basic training errors. And so we, we know that like, like if, if you're running 60 miles a week and you're doing it week in, week out, all the way through the winter, the likelihood you're going to get an injury is quite low because it's a really consistent mileage. Like it's 60 miles week in, week out. But if you if you ran 60 miles up until Christmas and then decided, OK, training's going really well, I'm going to run 80 miles next week. Like it's a simple example, but that's like a huge jump in the amount of training that you're doing. And so we'd kind of call that a training error that would kind of lead to injury. It doesn't just have to be volume. Like if you went again, another simple example I've seen a lot with my runners is they'll train in the UK for maybe three months. And then they go on like a warm weather training camp to South Africa or altitude somewhere. And the, the terrain is completely different. Like they may be running on quite rutted surfaces or they go to the road or they go to the grass and it's a change in terrain. So again, it's, it's quite a big jump to the, to the kind of musculoskeletal system um, to experience that, that sort of change really, really quickly. 
And to go from running 60 miles a week on the grass to all of a sudden 60 miles a week on the road. Um, and you see the same around sort of Easter time when people tend to get back on the track. They get into their spikes. They start doing faster efforts. And they might only do that once a week, but it's quite a different stress to what they've been doing all winter. And so you tend to see a lot of injuries start to occur around, around about Easter time when people have had fantastic winter's training and it's really frustrating. But again, that would be like a change in training um that would yeah that would kind of cause an injury um so yeah sorry to sorry to keep rabbiting on probably the other two main ones and these are again really basic is lifestyle factors and so things related to sleep and stress like i know a lot of uni students have just had exams travel like all of those sorts of things you need to kind of adjust and factor in um how your lifestyle is changing into the to, into the way in which you're training um and then obviously nutrition as well, that if, if people aren't eating enough, if they're not eating enough of the right types of food, then potentially that's going to impair recovery processes and and then tissues don't repair fast enough before the next training session. And over time, that can potentially lead to an injury. So they sound like really simple things, like think about previous injuries, think about managing your training and organising your training well with, with coaches' input, think about lifestyle factors and nutrition, like they're kind of boring things, but... They are the main things that are going to cause injury with with female runners. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, yeah, don't don't make any aggressive changes in in training. And of those, quickly before we do move on, you know, sleep, stress, nutrition, um, training change is one factor. You think, or do you think one factor is more impactful, or are they all kind of an equal combination? Um, I think probably training factors is is the most important. Um, but they also interact as well. Like if you you can probably relate to like if you if you completely bury yourself in a session, you do like a really intense workout, like you struggle to sleep that evening. <laughs> and so that's then a lifestyle factor. It's like oh, I had a really dodgy night's sleep and I've got a 10 mile run tomorrow morning or whatever. And so you do. Yeah, you do the run and you feel pretty lousy after it. Like it kind of starts to build up um, and all these different things inter interact together. Um, so, yeah, trying to stay as disciplined as possible in all areas is a bit boring but <laughs> probably the best way to avoid injury yeah consistency is key we definitely see yeah. that coming up time and time again and so now if we look more to bone health I mean so many so many female runners so many runners have had or have issues kind of with with bone health how would you describe bone health and what are the indicators that can be examined for this yeah so Bones are really important, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> they make up our skeleton. Um, so, yeah, we, like the skeletal system, it provides us with structure. It protects our organs. It anchors muscles and it stores calcium, all of these all of these sorts of basic functions. But the, the other thing about bones is they are very active tissues. Like I think most people kind of think about the skeleton as when we're kids, we kind of grow to a certain height and then the skeleton doesn't really do anything. But that's not true at all. Like we know that cells within our bones are constantly turning over so the way in which we can kind of describe bone health is that the bones are able to serve those purposes and those functions and are also able to cope with the kind of repeated loading cycles that we're placing them under as part of as part of our running training yeah yeah okay and so in terms of like endurance athletes you know specifically female runners what sort of issues do you commonly see occurring with bone health and what can be some of the factors that can be contributing towards this 
Yeah, it's, it is a really topical area, this is an area that I've just started doing more research in over the last couple of years. It's probably best encapsulated in something called the female athlete triad, um, which has become part of something I mentioned right at the start, this relative energy deficiency in sports syndrome. Um, but essentially, the female athlete triad is three interrelated conditions that have got energy availability at the cornerstone. So those three those three interrelated conditions are, as I say, energy availability as, as number one, um, menstrual cycle status as number two, and then bone health status as number three. And we know what happens, and it seems to be females that are a little bit more sensitive to this than males, is that if we if female athletes don't quite eat enough or they don't eat enough to match the requirements of uh, of their training and their lifestyle, and they've got enough left for recovery and repair processes as well, um, they'll start to lose a little bit of weight. And that might be kind of unintentional and kind of unnoticed initially. Um, and then that starts to impact upon female sex hormones, in particular estrogen. And we know that estrogen has got a primary role to play in maintaining bone health. Um, like quite often when female hormones become impacted, probably the best kind of marker or barometer of, of the signal that the body gives out is menstrual cycle uh, function and status. Um, and so if menstrual cycles start to become a little bit irregular, and in worst case scenario, they completely stop, which is a condition known as, as uh, secondary amenorrhea, we know that that's kind of like a major, major red flag that probably your bones are starting to be in, impacted quite negatively. And so, yeah, over a long period of time, particularly if we've got either um, inconsistent menstrual cycles or a cessation of menstrual cycles, that's potentially going to result in some sort of bone stress response. Mm -hmm. And then again, worst case scenario, like a, a stress fracture. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of that, I mean, not everybody who necessarily suffers from red S always ends up having low bone density or some people end up with worse bone density than others. What sort of factors might be going on there and, and why might that be the case? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And yeah, I, I, you kind of see both. So I've had a lot of female runners over the years that have come to see me and have, have had a stress fracture, but they've got really really regular menstrual cycles and they haven't noticed kind of any weight loss or anything like that like their eating behaviors are pretty good and so it's it's obviously other reasons that are contributing to towards that stress fracture and equally as, as you just said you can have female athletes that have got symptoms of kind of moderate red s or symptoms of um of the female athlete triad that don't ever have any kind of bone problems at all so i'm um, yeah it's it's difficult to to obviously generalize and I don't want to kind of scaremonger and say, yeah, if mental cycles a little bit irregular, you're definitely gonna have a stress fracture because that's not necessarily the case. It's just kind of increasing your risk. And so you've got to be a, a, a little bit cautious. But um yeah, to answer answer your question, there are obviously some other factors that play a part in just bone health generally and potentially whether you, you get some sort of bone stress-related injury. So um, other nutritional things. So we know that if vitamin D and calcium intake is insufficient, which can obviously come with not eating enough in the first place, that can play a part. Again, coming back to what we've already spoken about, that if we make kind of training errors and either step up the volume or the intensity of training too quickly, that can cause stress to the bone and result in an injury. Um, 
there's again some evidence that changes in running surface or sudden changes in footwear can uh, can contribute towards bone injuries around around the foot and also kind of faulty biomechanics so um i say faulty but like a specific type of biomechanics might place excessive stress on certain parts of again foot ankle tibia and potentially manifest as some sort of um, bone problem long term Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And yeah, it's so hard, I guess, with sort of the individual component, you know, every person being different to pinpoint exact factors or an exact kind of uh, roadmap for what to do or what not to do for every single person. But for those who have unfortunately suffered with bone related issues, or be that maybe Red S induced, for them, what kind of could the long term impacts be and the recovery process and way to build back from that? Have you got any sort of recommendations or thoughts around that? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, just going back to the comment that you just made, like there's there's potentially a lot of different factors that might lead to either poor bone health or a bone injury in, in females. The first question as the as an SNC coach slash sports scientist that I would always ask is around menstrual cycles, because the, the first thing I want to know is um, is kind of energy status or energy availability sufficient to be fueling the, the training that they've got. And then with the help of other sports scientists and medical professionals, you can then start to explore other facets of their training and, and lifestyle, as, as we've said. But for yeah, for some for for an athlete that unfortunately has had a, a bone stress fracture, like I'd, I'd be heavily guided here by the medical doctor and, and a physiotherapist. And because it, it obviously depends on the severity of, of the injury. And so you you tend to get a DEXA scan, which will give us like an indication of, of bone mineral density. Um, and also usually an MRI to get a, an idea of, of uh, the extent of the damage and and, uh, and, and what site's been affected. But the, I guess the good thing compared to other serious injuries is there's no surgery required with um, with with stress responses or, or stress fractures. But in the worst case scenario, like in... Yeah, you've probably seen a lot of uh, runners that have experienced this. Like, it's it's important to completely offload the area, and that might mean like either going on crutches or placing uh, placing the foot if it's if it's foot or shin um, in a protective boot, um, and so it can be as offloaded as much as possible to allow the yeah allow the area to, to start repairing. But for a low grade response, like I think it's usually two or three weeks off um whereas with a full-blown stress fracture like it tends to be sort of like nine to 12 weeks um like what i've tended to see a little bit with some of the runners that i've worked with that have, that have had like a full stress fracture if they're operating at quite a high level if they're an elite runner they'll be really really worried about losing fitness and so they'll get themselves on the cross trainer or the bike or in the swimming pool and they'll just absolutely smash the cross training sort of like three, four, five hours a day sometimes because they don't want to lose the fitness. And then three months later, they go back to their doctor, they get a scan and the stress fracture is still there. And so you've got to be a little bit careful, um, like kind of how much cross training that you do, because obviously that takes up a lot of energy. And in some cases, you're trying to correct the hormone levels. And equally, like even though you're doing those activities and it feels like it's offloaded, like there's still always going to be a little bit of load going through the um, the bone. And so you've got to be a little bit careful kind of how much you do and potentially use that period of time just to give your body a bit of a rest, but still trying to maintain fitness a little bit. 
Um, so yeah, just I, I guess menstrual cycle states would be my key thing. And then with the help of either a dietitian or a nutritionist, looking at energy intake and things like vitamin D and calcium. And then, as I say, maybe 40 biomechanics and footwear and things like that as, uh, as another thing to look at. Yeah, no, that's that's really great to hear. And yeah, rest is definitely so, so important sometimes and can definitely benefit in the long term overall. And so I guess in terms of maybe even the relationship with um, the menstrual cycle and strength and conditioning kind of mention of the menstrual cycle there, do they impact massively on each other in terms of um, how someone might respond to strength training based on the time of month it might be um, and also their risk of injury? Yeah, that is that is a really good question. So I did a systematic review and meta-analysis on this a few years back. And the simple answer was for like an average female, it doesn't. So we collated together about 20 different studies that looked at um, whether strength varies across different phases of the menstrual cycle. And the the conclusion, and this has been supported in, in other research as well, was that it doesn't. Um, I guess I guess the main thing that I would say off the back of that is that essentially means that probably for most females, you can perform like any types of strength and conditioning at different points in your cycle. Um, and it shouldn't affect like either the performance that you that you've got in the gym or the amount of adaptation that you're getting from that session. All of that said, there's obviously going to be females that have quite severe symptoms as part of their menstrual cycle. And so that's obviously important to factor in um when you prescribe in strength training and also within sessions like modifying the types of work or um uh, or the amount of loading that you're doing but you can really only do that by having a good relationship with both your technical running coach and your snc coach and having a kind of open conversations about how you're feeling at different points in your cycle um it's so they can modify the training and the sessions. If you haven't got that open relationship where you don't talk to them about that, they're just going to think that you've probably had a bad session or <laughs> you're overtrained or something like that. Whereas actually it's just, yeah, it's, it's potentially down to, um, to, to hormonal variations. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, it's definitely always really important to have those conversations with kind of the relevant people involved within your sort of training setup and stuff. And okay, and so we've got a, a couple of, questions just to wrap up with and then we can go through a few listener questions if that's okay yeah so sure, yeah firstly if you had access to all the time money and resources what would be the next topic or area that you choose to research and why yeah that's a really yeah it's a really good question and it would be, be lovely to have all the time money and resources in the world <laughs> um I'd, I'd really like to do a like a proper big study that looks at the use of S&C and whether it can be used as a tool to prevent injury in runners. Um, because there's never, like studies studies like that are quite hard to do because you need a really big group of runners to see enough injuries over a long period of time. And then ideally you need like a whole year to do the study. Um, and you need the runners to come in and supervise the sessions ideally. And yeah, and so the, the reason the research hasn't really been done is that type of study design is unrealistic for both the researchers and the participants. Um, whereas if you had, yeah, all the time, all the money and the resources, you could do it at Loughborough because there's enough runners at Loughborough. It's just, um, yeah, it's just getting it set up, I guess, and getting the buy-in off both athletes and coaches. <laughs> yeah, no, that would, yeah, would be such an interesting study uh, for sure if it ever could get done. 
And what, or can you describe a common misconception that you frequently see with people around kind of SNC or bone health? Yeah, um, I, th I think a lot of the misconceptions around the use of resistance training with runners, like they've not been, they've not completely disappeared, but like my perception is over the last 10 years, they've got better. And so I think most runners now understand that SNC has an important role to play in performance and maybe injury prevention as well. And that if they go to the gym and they lift weights, they're not going to become bodybuilders. Um, so that used to be a misconception, but I don't think it's as bad now. Um, I've always got a little bit of a kind of pet peeve around the term core stability. Like I know it's really popular with runners and um, a lot of runners will do loads of core stability. It's just when I see like a really, really high emphasis on it, And you sort of speak to runners, they're like, oh, I do five core sessions a week. And you're kind of like, "What? why are you doing that much core? It's, um, yeah, I'm opening a bit of a can of worms here. But <laughs> like exercises for the trunk are always going to be a part of SNC. But um, it shouldn't be like the whole program. And so, yeah, I can elaborate if you want, but you don't need to do, yeah. I think someone has just liked to feel the burn kind of thing. They're just like, oh, yeah, great ab workout. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's not as important as people think. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. I guess sometimes people think, oh, running, I'm using my legs. I'm using my arms a bit. Right, I'll do, I'll do a bit of the core. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, okay. And so if we move on to a couple of listener questions now, first up we've got what is the difference between prehab and rehab? So, yeah, pre prehab the term tends to be used uh, to prevent injury. Um, I mean, it originally comes from medicine and like it was, yeah, it was kind of coined for any kind of patients that were going into surgery and it was kind of good for them to sort of strengthen joints or areas of the body that were good, that were going to be operated on. And so when there's, there's really good evidence that the, then during their post-surgery or post-operative weeks and months that their recovery is better And so you kind of take that principle into athletes and sport and you say, well, if we do exercises or activities that are going to stress this area that's going to be placed under stress, so it might get injured, then over a long period of time, like it should reduce the risk of that area getting injured. And so that's prehab, whereas rehabilitation is if unfortunately we get an injury, it's how we go through a process of trying to recover and re-strengthen that area. So it's yeah. safe, safe to resume exercise or full training rather. Yeah. Yeah. Prevention and, and post post situation work, I guess. Yeah. That's probably the best way to phrase it. <laughs> Not sure. A bit, a, bit, a bit waffly, but does vitamin D supplements improve bone health? Oh, <laughs> you need to ask a nutritionist this. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Like I think I th Like usually, so most athletes and just even general members of the public, actually, there's not very much evidence at all that you need to take any supplements if your diet's decent. <laughs> if if people are deficient in a certain food group, either because, I don't know, an, an allergy or an intolerance, or they just can't get access to that food group, then there might be a, a role for supplementation. The, the one exception and this is just my understanding, so a nutritionist might correct me, is particularly during the winter months, like it is quite hard to get enough vitamin D, particularly for athletes. And so there's, 
I know some athletes sometimes take a vitamin D supplement, particularly during winter months, um, because they can't get enough. But again, my understanding is if if you're kind of outside a bit and you're doing your training outside and your diet's pretty good and you're getting enough vitamins and minerals through your diet, then you probably don't need to take a vitamin D supplement. Um, but yeah, Yeah. speak to a nutritionist. <laughs> yeah. 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 Always, always get the uh, relevant, correct professional advice as always, guys. Um, Yeah. and then we've got someone, this is pretty generic, but maybe you can give a bit of a sum up to it. Uh, how can we protect our joints when running? Um, they say they've currently got a big toe injury. Oh, big toe, that, that goes to my barefoot conditioning. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I think going back to our injury conversation, like it's 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 difficult to identify like why that big toe might be hurting. Um, if they've injured that area before, that's, yeah, it's important that they, 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 they re-strengthen it and make sure they go for a full rehabilitation before they get back to towards full training. Um, like it's probably going to be something to do with increasing volume or intensity or running surface too quickly um like it might be a footwear issue either footwear is too old or they've changed footwear um and so I'd, I'd try to have a look at as many different potential factors that that might be causing that um like it's always tricky to sort of pinpoint one aspect of your running biomechanics um but if yeah if, if they kind of go through a process of saying yeah like There's been no errors with my training, like I'm doing a bit of S&C for that area, I haven't changed my footwear or my training surface too much. Like they might want to investigate getting a, a kind of biomechanical analysis of the way that they're running. Um, I mean, one test that I do with most runners that I work with is a big, big toe mobility assessment because yeah, it sounds odd. It's a really easy test to do. But if you if if you've got really, really stiff, big toes, because they play a really important role in kind of steering forces at toe off. Um, if it's not, if it's not mobile enough, it will tend to place quite a lot of stress on the foot. And so, yeah, for someone that's got an actual big toe injury, like it would probably be worth doing a, a mobility test of that big toe just to check that the joint's got enough mobility. okay well get get those big toes moving then <laughs> Yeah. that's what I'm hearing and finally if you could only recommend one exercise for runners what would it be <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not allowed to say oh it depends um my go-to exercise is usually an exercise that I call the dead leg step up because it's yeah and particularly for female runners it's a it's, it's a really good one because it challenges the glutes in in such a demanding way um the, the other reason it's really useful is you can do it at home in like the comfort of your own home you don't need any sort of fancy kit in an, an S&C facility and so Like the way you would do it is you would turn side on to a step um, or a box, which is roughly about 30 centimetres high for most people. Um, you then stand on the box and you kind of lower yourself down as if you're doing like a single leg squat or a step up. But as your outside foot touches the ground, you touch with your heel really, really lightly. And so you, you don't get any push whatsoever off the outside leg. And so it will feel to most people like a kind of partial single leg squat. Um, but it's more of a step up because in the bottom position, you've got a little bit of stability in the same way that you would have on a step up. But, um, I mean, even when I do them, I still, and I haven't done them for a while, like I still get quite a bit of soreness in my glutes and you can really feel it challenging like your quads and hamstrings to a certain extent as well. Um, 
so that's probably my favorite exercise if i'm allowed to cheat with a second like i'd always do something for calves and achilles with most runners so like yeah calf raises are pretty key like they've they're, they're always a, a staple part of the program Yeah. Okay. So they they actually are important, not just the physios go to <laughs> generic. <laughs> yeah. Hundred <laughs> percent. No. Well, thank you so much, Rich. You know, it's been great covering these topics. You know, so much important stuff and and value that that people can definitely take away from this. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries at all. And I'm more than happy for anyone to get in touch with me if they've got any questions. Awesome. And and what's the best mode for or method for someone to contact you? Uh, probably just find me an email. So my email is r.c.blagrove, spelled B-L-A-G-R-O-V-E, and then at Elbro, as you know, L-B-O-R-O dot A-C dot U-K. Um, I'm on Twitter or X quite a lot, but I, t I tend not to use Facebook and Instagram for sort of like sports science S&C type stuff, really. So people can get in touch with me on X if they want as well. Awesome. No, and I'll, I'll link those details down below as well. So anyone can, can drop you a message. Thanks again. So that's it for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, be sure to rate, subscribe and leave a review. This really helps to get the content out there. And I want to make this podcast the best possible for you. So go follow Fitter Faster Happier on Instagram. That's Fitter Faster Happier to leave your questions, comments and feedback and for updates and guest requests. All the best for the week ahead guys. Run happy, live happy, be happy. <laughs>